Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Friend of a Friend. Something that I often talk about on the show and a really big piece of advice when people ask me about their careers in general is that you have to have community. No matter what you do, where you work, finding your people and keeping them close is one of the most important lessons that I have ever learned as someone in fashion. And I know that applies to any industry. You'll champion each other, lean on each other, and I promise, even if it's just someone you met, maybe in a freshman year writing class, who knows, maybe 10 years later, they'll still be a dear friend and they'll be on your podcast because they're now a writer on Gossip Girl. Yes, that happened. Go check it out. The episode is awesome. I love my people and I'm always going to champion them. And I really encourage you guys to do the same. One of my people is Danielle Prescott. I think we met in a bandier class. Maybe I was still in college at the time, but she instantly became one of those people who always felt like a security blanket for me. Whether we were at a work event, fashion week, whatever it was in this crazy industry, if she was there, all was good in my world. For those of you who are just meeting her, Danielle is a 15-year fashion industry veteran. She's worked at InStyle, Elle, BET, and she's someone I often turn to, and I know thousands of others do too, for her razor-sharp and unapologetic perspective of the industry. But today we're celebrating something totally different because she is about to be a first-time author. Last year, she said goodbye to the fashion industry and moved to New Orleans, where she penned her first book, Token Black Girl, a memoir about her experiences growing up Black in a predominantly white neighborhood and the experiences that followed her into her teen years and into the halls of some of the most well-known magazines in the world. The book is startling. I could say my jaw dropped multiple times because it's a harsh look into white supremacy within media and her personal story of recovering from years of striving for perfection, loss of identity, and living in a world where she never truly felt accepted. In today's episode, Danielle and I got together to talk about the moments that led her to write this book, how she turned her life experiences into output and lessons for us all, and how the fashion industry needs to do better. The book is currently available for pre-order. I have it linked in the episode description here. It'll be available on October 1st. Get your hands on it ASAP. And if you haven't followed the show yet, find us wherever you listen to your podcast and make sure you follow us, rate, and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in and have an amazing week ahead, everybody. Here's my conversation with my friend, Danielle Prescott. Hi. When was the last time we saw each other? It's definitely been over two years. It's so weird. It's so crazy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Are you in your really, really like nice, gorgeous looking apartment in New Orleans? I am. How has that been? I can't believe that you moved. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm super happy to be here. Like it's pretty dysfunctional at times, but (laughs) you know, it's like to me, like no place is perfect, right? Like 
I still had like lots of things I liked about my life in New York, but I was like, it's so loud here. It's driving me insane. And I just like felt like I couldn't be there anymore. So like definitely the pros outweigh the cons in my move. You did like a full on COVID move. Full on. I moved January of 2021. That's insane. But I love that you did that. I have like deep admiration for people who did the COVID move because like you had that feeling of like this world isn't working for me right now. I want to go do something different. And you like jumped on it. Whereas I feel like everyone at some point during the pandemic had that feeling, but only a few people really took full advantage of it. Yeah, it's definitely not easy. Like moving is traumatic, even if it's under the best of circumstances, like it sucks. So it's a big decision, but I'm, I'm so happy I made it because I don't think I would have been able to like be happy in New York, you know? Especially for what you're doing now. I feel like it was the perfect place to like go start over, have a place Mm -hmm. where you could just write and do what you needed to do and not be distracted. It is very interesting. I live in the French Quarter, which is like a very historic part of town. And what I really liked about it, like, I mean, at least living, what I like about living downtown is that I didn't want to shock my system too much by moving somewhere too residential or moving somewhere where like I had to live in a house, for example, like I still live in an apartment building at 24 seven security, like someone to sign for my packages, all the things that I basically had in New York, just more space and everyone is so nice and everything just like moves really slow. And I still definitely radiate a frenetic kind of like East Coast energy, but I'm working on it. (laughs) Does that, I'm so curious to hear because everywhere I go, and if I said I've lived in New York, the first thing someone will say back to me is, yeah, you're very in New York. And it's kind of, I kind of feel the same way that someone says to me, oh man, you look tired. I'm like, are you complimenting me? Like is my, uh, because I do feel energetically a little bit different. So I'm like, so wait, are you complimenting me or are you saying that I'm just like psychotic? (laughs) I think there's just like a kind of intensity that comes along with people who like live in New York. Your time is very precious. Like things are really scheduled and regimented and just like make sense. And so like by default, you kind of expect that to be like the way of the world. And it's not really like the way of the world. Like I'll often go to like a coffee shop here and I'm like, the way that they're running this makes zero sense. It is so remarkably inefficient, but no one cares enough to make it efficient. But like we prioritize efficacy in New York because we have no other option when there's that many people. So like things have to have lines. The lines have to make sense. You have to wait your turn. Like there are just rules that have to govern how we have to interact with each other because otherwise it would be pandemonium. And like when there are just less people it's more opportunity to be like, oh, whatever. I have noticed myself become literally the efficiency police. And I'm like, why am I like this? It's honestly from living in New York for so long. If things mm-hmm. aren't like operating smoothly or like this drive is not on my way, I'm not having it. Exactly. I'm just not having it. Exactly. Well, I'm jealous that you live there. I had such an amazing trip there. I went, I was really, I was quite young. It was over 10 years ago. And I went right when Hurricane Katrina happened. My school had like a, they had like put together with a bunch of different schools, kids who wanted to go and help out in the lower ninth in whatever capacity they could. And I remember walking that area. And I was, of course, being as like sensitive and kind of to myself as I possibly could. I wasn't there to like kind of like go in on someone's life. I was, you know, just kind of going where I was needed. But I noticed just walking around every single home or whatever was left of it every person opened their door for me and was like, come inside. I remember there was one guy 
that actually like welcomed me in and was showing me all of his family albums and ended up, ended up cooking for my friends and I. And it was just a different, I, I don't think I've experienced hospitality in a moment of so much grief like that. And it yeah. really was such a, I, I, I have such a profound respect and just a di- totally different outlook on the people of New Orleans from that moment. It was just, totally. it's different. They like want, they want everyone to come over and it's such a community. I haven't experienced that anywhere else. It's really, really, it's a really special place to live. And like Katrina was particularly devastating for this place. And it, it's like this ever present trauma. And it's interesting because I lived in New York when 9-11 happened and it was very, it very much affected my family like directly. And, but I, I felt like because in a way like New York operates as like a center of the universe. I mean, all we had was like help and resources just like flying in. Everyone was like focused on New York. And I just, I mean, I know it to be true because I was here during Ida that like Katrina happened. And then it was almost like, yeah, that really bad thing happened down there in New Orleans. Like no one mobilized to like send help. No one like did enough. And I'm like, I just can't, I'm like, I feel like there is this, you know, grit to the people of New Orleans that is like, it's different than like the grit that we have in New York, you know? So I'm like always like racking on people here for like not being ambitious enough and not like things just like not making sense. And I'm like, okay, I also have to remember that like 17 years ago, something like so devastating happened that is like, I mean, they're irrevocably changed, like for better or worse, like things are just always going to be different and like just have to accept it. Do you think you're going to stay? Yeah, I'm planning on staying for a while. I've already been here for a year and a half. So time flying too fast. I know. So I'll be here for a little while longer, at least. This is so exciting because I feel like usually you and I have always spoken in our fashion capacities, but you're in such an exciting time in your life right now. You're what, a month and a half away from releasing your first book, which is crazy. How do you feel? It's funny because book writing is a really slow process and I feel kind of like distant from it now. Like I turned the book in over a year ago. So I was like done for a really long time. It's like making a movie. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh my gosh, now I have to like access all of these feelings, but I'm excited for people to read it. I am really proud of it. And I really hope that, you know, it can teach people something and that if it, you know, is not something that you're being taught from, like that you can recognize yourself and some of the experiences I had. I tried to like anchor what I was going through at the time to like moments in pop culture history and entertainment so that people can like localize themselves. So even if they were not experiencing the same exact thing as me, they understand like what the media landscape was like, what the cultural landscape was like and how we spoke to each other and the things that were happening on the news. I'm so excited for people to finally get to read it. I mean, it's crazy. I feel like you've been talking about this for a very long time. So it feels... It feels just insane to be sitting here and talking about it. But for my listeners who are just getting to know you, I will talk a lot today about the book, but I'm not going to give so much away because you guys have to get it and read it. But, you know, I, I met you as a fashion editor. You've been in this industry for 15 years. You've been everywhere. You've had like 
the gold star, perfect fashion editor trajectory in my mind. Like you did it all like yeah. in style, L, B, E, T. And I think so many people would aspire to that, but you turned that experience into something that now we're going to learn a lot from. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience in the fashion industry that led you to this moment of needing to write a very, a very kind of expose driven book around it. Yeah. I wanted to work in fashion for so long. I had always really like interested in it because I wore a uniform for most of my life. So I thought that like expressing yourself by what you wear was like very, very important. And so when I got to college, I was pre-med because I thought that I wanted to go to med school and be a doctor. I thought I was going to be a plastic surgeon. And I took a bio class and a bio lab, and it was truly the hardest thing that I have ever done. It was like a brutal, like 8.30 a.m. class. The lab was three hours on Monday nights. Like it was just horrendous. And I remember I wanted to drop the class so bad and I called my mom up and I was like, I can't take this final. It's going to bring down my whole GPA, which was at the time perfect. And I was like, I can't do this. And she was like, you can't have a W on your transcript. So she made me stay in the class and I have no idea why I listened to this advice, but it was horrible advice. I ended up, I think I got a B, it squeaked out a B in the class, but it was like, okay, I have to change paths. And so I had decided, I guess, pretty early that I wanted to work in magazines. Now, mind you, I didn't know anything about magazines and I didn't know like what people's roles were, but I always read the word in magazines. So I was like, well, someone's job it is to write these words. I say they credit the photographer. I see they credit the writer. So I could got to be one of those two people. And so I got, went about getting an internship. And so when I got my first internship, it was at Nylon Magazine and I was 18 years old. And my job was to help the deputy editor. And so she would give me these things to transcribe, which means you like listen to interviews and you type out all the words. This was like pre-automated transcription services. So I was the robot that had to listen to these things. People were like in bars. I'm like straining to hear these conversations, but I would always finish my, and they would have me fact check and they would have me like do, you know, kind of like tasks related to the copy. And I would always finish them really, really early. And I was like, you know, I never wanted to look not busy. So I started helping out in the fashion closet and they always needed people to like go on pickups essentially to be like messengers. And so I would like, run all around Soho, like picking up garment bags of clothes to like bring back to the office. And that's when I figured out that like, okay, this is how the clothes get here. And this is the person who's calling in the clothes. And I was like, Oh, maybe I want to do that. <laughs> um, what a, what a funny, naive thought. I remember <laughs> I was in a fashion closet once too. And I was like, wait, this is so great. Maybe this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Be <laughs> in this like tiny walled, no windows room with just clothes everywhere. Right. I was like, this is perfect. Nothing could be better. I truly was nope. like, I, even if you told me like how toxic and horrible the industry was, I still would have been like, I want this. I wanted it so bad. And then from there, I just like continued interning and I actually didn't write for like a really, really long time. And writing always came really easily to me. That's what I was hired to do. when I first like got to nylon, but I was just so green and really like didn't know anything about like 
how brand voices are established and the fact that like I'm not talking necessarily as me, I'm talking as a nylon editor. And so, yeah, it, it just took a lot of learning, but I figured it out. I found my way back to writing when I was at L because just by like sheer necessity, like I had to be the fashion editor and I had to write my own copy. <laughs> Slowly down the road, jobs started collapsing and people started getting more than just one job. I think of why I wanted to write the book in the first place was because I was having so many issues with like self-esteem and feeling like personal autonomy. And I'm like, why don't I feel like I belong to myself? And I'm like, oh, it's because essentially for years, decades, I have like allowed people to use me for their benefit. So I have always had in any institution I've ever been affiliated with, like been useful to somebody because I am black and because I show up in a way that is quote unquote acceptable. So they put me on the front cover of my school brochures. They put me, I have like a very, very visible job when I'm at L. I have a very, very visible job when I'm at InStyle, but they're like essentially invalidating me behind closed doors. So like, I don't have a voice. I'm not able to speak up for myself. I'm certainly not getting paid fairly or what everyone else is getting paid. And so like knowing that, but also being someone who is served by representation. So being the person that gets to see Normani and gets to see Lisa Turtle and gets to see, you know, Gabrielle Union, that made a difference for me. But I need people to understand that like, yes, while representation is important, like making sure that people can access their full humanity is also important because like, it just makes you feel so trapped if like your image is the only thing that people care about or, you know, they make you feel like that's the only useful thing about you. I can't do that anymore. Like it was just so exhausting and I just didn't feel like it was like contributing enough to society. I think a big wake up call happened for me in 2016 when Trump was elected. Cause I was like, okay, so I am guilty of telling women the best thing that they can be is like an Oklahoma version of Kate Hudson. And that's what they should aspire to do. And I'm like, that's insane. And not true. I'm like, oh, we can't, we can't just be like, that can't be the only thing that I'm like telling women about. So I was like enough. Yeah. I think that that that's the double-edged sort of being in fashion is that you can love it. You can have deep admiration for clothing. And I really related to a lot of what you were saying when you were younger about kind of using fashion as an armor for any other insecurity that you might have had. It became this thing where you can become someone else. And there was such a power to people coming to you and either saying, oh, I like your outfit or what should I wear to this or what should I buy? I think that fashion, as empowering as it can be, it can also be quite a veil to a lot of things that we might be dealing with underneath them. Totally. I resonate with that. And I think that it's also true of kind of what we live with today. We are constantly inundated with fashion stories, buy this, do this, wear this, and you can feel a different kind of way. But it never really addresses maybe how we actually feel or other things that are going on in the world. And I agree. I think 2016 was a big moment that I think a lot of people reconsidered what they were doing and what they were putting out there and what was important. But it's an interesting kind of catch 22 when it comes to fashion. It's empowering, but it can also be very evasive. 
I think there are also a lot of people like working in within the industry with a lot of like unresolved insecurities. Like, and we look to these people as like experts. And I think we do this a lot with like celebrity culture too. We look at celebrities like, oh, well, Gwyneth Paltrow just must be perfect. And it's like, no, she's actually just human. Like everyone is human. And yeah, sometimes people bring like their trauma and their baggage to their work. I'm like, I know I did. And that's how I end up like posting like really toxic, horrible stories. I'm like, I did so much work in service of like Victoria's Secret, which is essentially like fat phobic, transphobic. It was just, I was like, I don't actually feel like this is empowering or helping women, but I'm like, I am now guilty of like helping to further broadcast that message. I'm like, why would I amplify this? Like, you know, but I'm like, I was not able to recognize like that in the moment. And so many people aren't, and they're going to work every single day and hitting publish on stories every single day and conducting interviews every single day without resolving like those issues that they have. But they're just people like just because you're, you have editor in chief before your name does not make you a superhero. It's interesting what I was saying earlier about kind of your trajectory in fashion as an editor. I think millions of girls would want that trajectory, be able to live in New York and go work at all these brands and, and publications. But it's also interesting hearing you say this now that it's so easy to get caught up in this cycle of publishing the wrong things and saying the wrong message. And I wonder, this might be a tricky question, but for people that are listening that might want to get into fashion and might want to be journalists and kind of get into that same arena, what's your piece of advice for staying away from the, the vicious cycle? I think that, you're like, don't get into fashion. <laughs> I mean, I always am like, oh no, we don't need any more stylists out there in the world. We truly don't. But you know, I, I wouldn't have stopped me. Like if people would have told me like when I was 18, like, oh, you should, you should not do this. I would be like, no, you're crazy. Like, I, of course I want this. No, but I don't think that it's, it's hopeless. The problem is that it's like largely a pay to play landscape. And so Anytime you get involved with anything you love and it turns into a commerce situation, it changes your relationship to it. Like, I don't care what it is. Like, even if you're painting, even if you're dancing, even if you are like any way that you're using your creativity to like fund your income, like you are going to be fundamentally changed by it. And because of that, you have to just recognize that like, this is a business and know like what is like a low stake situation like is it horrible for me to do like an advertorial about a shampoo that I already use like probably not is it harmful for me to do like an advertorial for a shampoo that I would personally never use yes you know like not doing proper research getting very lazy about like what you're gonna like sign off on or put your name on of course those are like really dangerous things that have like very big world consequences because potentially millions of people could be affected by that choice that you're making. Like when we are talking about, you know, circulation numbers used to be in the tens of thousands. Like it was very major if like a publication got in the hundreds of thousands. But I can tell you that I would publish stories that would get millions of clicks, millions. So it was reaching far more people than a magazine ever could. And that becomes like, you know, your responsibility to like serve people well. The book covers a lot of what went on during your time in fashion, but 
what I think moved me the most was hearing about your struggles from childhood up until today with self-image and the desire for perfection, especially growing up Black in a predominantly white neighborhood. And I think to be able to do kind of the investigative deep work that you did on yourself to be able to reveal and bring all that to the surface in this book, to me, is a massive feat. And we were talking about this earlier, how I think that writing is kind of this masochistic act, having to sit down and tear those kind of deep parts of you. I would love to hear what that process was like for you, because I think something I also often think about now is how you can take life experiences and put them into output for other people to be able to learn lessons from. I find that to be something that's really complicated. I think a lot of people can just kind of go through life, experience things, but being able to kind of take those and process them is a challenge. So I would love to hear about your experience in, in doing that and writing this book that felt kind of like a chronological journal memoir of your life. Yeah. I think the one fear I had about this book was feeling like misunderstood because while I do occupy a marginalized identity and that I am black and female, I do also occupy a privileged identity and that I had a lot of like educational and financial privilege from when I was a child. And there's not a lot of sympathy, empathy, or understanding for people that like can occupy like two places at once. So I was always in this battle with myself. It's like, well, what do you have to complain about? You have two parents that love you. You have food, shelter, cars, a great school. Like you can't really be upset. I thought that like people had to be able to like see you suffering. Like you had a physical disability or, you know, people otherwise knew that you were somehow living below the poverty line. And that was the only noble way to struggle. It's not enough for you to be struggling internally, essentially in a world that is safe and fine for you or should be. So that was like my one hesitation, knowing that I would have to also answer for the ways that like, I am not like the perfect victim like at all. And I don't even even think I was victimized in a lot of ways. Like I was very clever as a kid and I used my likability for adults to my advantage in a lot of ways and like behaved in ways that were like show-offy or snobby or off-putting. So I was like, I have to acknowledge like all of those things as well. I can't just be like, well, this person was mean to me once when I also was mean to people. So having to like answer those questions and really examine the motivations as to why, when I really felt like there was no map for like kind of understanding that for like someone like me, I'm like, I I just finished watching Never Have I Ever. And I was like, wow, like what an incredible thing that Mindy Kaling has done in like building this like teen girl character who is like so complex. And I was like, I don't think we've ever seen a romantic lead of color who is at so many times unlikable, very frustrating, but still very human. And I'm like, this is like the power of what representation is. I felt very much so that the representation I had shown was always so flat. So I was like, there is no room for a layered experience. So I learned to invalidate my own experience. And so I wrote this book to be like, there are layers and we do have to acknowledge nuance. And hopefully like that will bring out more understanding. 
that part, I think to me was what I took away the most was that you can be two things at once. You can be a walking contradiction. And also that's because like, if you're healing from things, it's often really ugly and horrible and right. very messy. And so, and even how you got there is horrible and ugly and messy. And life has both. It has peachy, rosy, like great, amazing things. And also has like very ugly things, but we have to like be able to leave space for both to coexist. There was a lot in there that I think for you, even hearing what you're saying now, to be able to come up with kind of the strength to get to that point where you're like, okay, I'm not a perfect person, but I can still write this book. I can still put this out there. I can still share a lesson. I don't think a lot of people would be able to get to that point. And you talked a ton about the work that you've done throughout your life on yourself. And I would love to hear a little bit about that, whether it was therapy or what was most helpful for you in kind of getting back to the roots of yourself. Therapy has been so helpful. I've been in and out of therapy since I was 14 and finding like a good, solid practitioner, like when you're an adult, I think is like a really, really positive and worthwhile pursuit because I also had a lot of therapists that I just didn't click with, or I didn't feel like their advice was working for me for like whatever reason. So I think like making the commitment to like finding that person is important. I also, I started changing like how I was interacting with certain media, you know, like I'm off Instagram right now. I gave Instagram up before I decided in I think 2018 that I was only going to read books by black authors. So I did that for like two years and everyone's like, are you still doing that? I mean, I did take some breaks. I did like read like some like bestsellers and stuff like in between there, but I was really committed to it because I was realizing I wasn't socializing myself to be able to like read about, seek out outlets for understanding more black experiences, like other than my own, obviously, or other than my family, something that I can see directly. I was like, I need to do that too. I can't ask people to do something that I'm not necessarily doing myself. And I think all of that helped. I think changing jobs helped me a lot too. I think moving out of New York also helped all of that. I think that like when you're healing from things too, it takes a long, just it's frustrating because I'm a very impatient person. I'm like, am I not fixed yet? Like how do I still have stuff to work on? That's so annoying. <laughs> like when's it going to be over, but it's never over. And also developing a meditation practice. I'm really serious mm. about it. I meditate every single day. Because I'm a really anxious person. I've always been a really anxious person. Right. But I have like high functioning anxiety. So I can channel it very well into things that like end up appearing to be like functional, I guess, or successful. This so, is why you and I get along. Yeah. It's, Two high functioning anxiety people meet in a bar. <laughs> the talent, but it's also like yeah. it's scary. It's, yeah, um, it's a lot. So meditating, like I do that like every single morning. I now do it at night too. So that has been, I never thought I would be a meditator. Like I, years ago, if people would always be like, you should meditate, you should meditate. I was like, oh, I can't do it. I'm bad at it. Like I just, I never thought I would be someone like talking to other people about how much I liked meditation. I'm like, I can't believe I'm this person, but it really, it works for me. And yeah. I, I just really find it to be helpful. Gosh, I feel like this is probably such a crazy process for you. Was there something that you learned about yourself in writing the book that you didn't know before? You know, I actually think that I like unlocked something about my like romantic issues, like in writing the book. I was like, I think I'm always trying to like 
heal that moment when I wanted to like date this guy. And he basically told his friend to tell my friend that he wouldn't date me because I was black. So I was like, so crushed by that. And I was like, I think I've like low key been recreating scenarios where like men would reject me, not necessarily because I was black, but like always like trying to access people who were unavailable in some sense, or like I had to like win them over somehow. Cause I thought that would like fix it. And I was like, I have to stop doing that. So I think that's one thing that I was like, Oh, that is where this came from. <laughs> Last week when I put up on my Instagram that I wanted to get kind of questions from people, yeah. one of the biggest questions that I got, people were curious if you, in the process of writing this book, ever got apologies from those people or if writing it was cathartic in its own way. No, I never got apologies from anybody. But I also think that it might be a situation where I think this is actually more likely the case where someone doesn't even realize like how something is coming across or that they should even apologize. I think we're in a very different world post 2020 than we were in pre 2020. And I think that people really need to understand that. Of course, yes, saying racist, terrible things in 2012 was wrong, but like we are in a very just different place. And like, I don't know if they will come or not come, but I also like, I'm not upset necessarily about it. I guess like I'm not holding on to it and I'm not expecting anything. I think I have just moved on. Even scenarios where like I was in abusive, like work situations, I'm like, I recognize like when things are a systemic issue versus when things are individual issues. And I think that more than anything, fashion has a systemic problem. It's the way people are talked to. It's the way people are treated. It's the way people are paid. It's the way people interact with each other that creates so many different problems. And like, of course that gets magnified on an individual level, but I don't necessarily feel like someone like talking to me was personal. I think that it was situational in some cases and like environmental, but I'm not like, oh, that's crazy. What I don't like about the industry is just like the overall like lack of accountability because then, you know, the expectation is that everything will just kind of regenerate itself and we'll be in a different place in six months. And like, there's no need to like address anything. And I'm like, that I don't agree with, but I don't really expect anyone who read the book to be like, I'm going to send an apology, but we'll see. When people read this book, what do you want them to take away from it? I really hope that they understand their own personal responsibilities too, to become more media literate. I think that's like a real passion point of mine. I hope that like when you start to like look at images, when you're looking at advertisements, when you're looking at casting decisions, like you can start being like, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Or like, I see exactly the message that they're trying to send here because a lot of people are fooled. And in fashion, we're very good storytellers, which is how, you know, things end up getting spun the way they do. So I really hope that people are able to, to see what's going on. I think it it started happening already. Like when Judge Katanji Brown was in her her Supreme Court hearings. A lot of people were like, 
oh, wow, she's so strong and stoic. And then a lot of the other commentary was like, but she shouldn't have to be because look at how Brett Kavanaugh behaved. Like, do you see the difference here? Do you understand who is being able to access and express their emotions and who is denied that? And like what that means. And I hope that like what after reading the book, they're able to identify more of those scenarios. Like when you're, it's like just so in your face. I'm so proud of you. This book was amazing. I can't wait for it to be out in the world. Like I cannot wait to see this ultra glamorous press tour that you're going to be on. I know. Very I can't excited. wait to have you at all the book things. Um, I'm coming to LA. So I'll have you Perfect. in LA. And if you're in New York in October, you can, you can come to my stuff then too. If I'm in the same city as you, I will be there. I'm just so proud. This is like such an accomplishment. Thank you for coming on the show. And I'm excited for everyone to get their hands on it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two Vs. See you next week.